You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. This morning I'm going to be continuing our uh, teaching series, looking through the book of 1 Timothy, which is in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, you might like to turn there now. Um, last week, Morris kicked this series off, and uh, we're calling it Blueprint, this series. The reason being is that it's a letter from the Apostle Paul, who was one of the early uh, church fathers, to a spiritual son of his, uh, Timothy, who was leading some churches in Ephesus, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey. And uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's urging Timothy to lay down some foundations in the churches that Timothy is serving. It's uh, important if you want to build anything, whether it's a, a physical building or a spiritual building like a church community, that good foundations are laid down right at the outset. And that's exactly what Paul is uh, doing when he's urging Timothy to lay down these foundations. And that's why we've called it Blueprint. So last week, as I say, Morris uh, touched upon uh, chapter 1 and uh, half of chapter 2. And he touched upon two things, really. The foundation of good doctrine, good teaching, and uh, how it was the elders' responsibility to ensure that good doctrine was taught in the churches there. And the second thing he looked at was the foundation of prayer. How Paul, it was so important for Paul that people were people of prayer. And this Wednesday night, uh, just gone, we put this into practice. We had a great prayer and vision night here. There was between 80 and 90 of us here. We had a great time worshipping, praising our God together, and then zealously praying that his kingdom might come uh, in greater measure here in this area and in the nations. And uh, I really want to urge you to get the next prayer and vision night in your diary. The 25th of July is open to anyone uh, who calls Hope Church their home, whether you are a member or not, we want you to come along uh, because they're such great evenings and they're so vital for uh, our church and our mission that we're covering everything we do in prayer. Uh, It would really bless me and your uh, other elders here to see many, many people here. We have had prayer and vision nights where uh, over a hundred have come in the past and we'd love to see that as a regular thing where many, many people come out to pray together. So that's what Morris touched upon uh, last week, and today we're going to continue uh, in this uh, journey through the book of First Timothy, looking a little more at chapter 2. And then next week, um, Gough Hope, who is one of the elders at King's Church in Norwich, and who is part of the relational mission uh, leadership team serving uh, Mike Betts, who we had here in September. Um, Gough is going to be with us uh, next week, continuing in chapter 3 of First Timothy, And we're also going to be praying uh, for Tim Virgo, who's at the back there, as he formally joins the eldership team. So we're we're in for a great Sunday next week. Um, We're going to be doing that in both services with Tim. And as we were discussing this as elders as to how we were going to do it, uh, we thought, well, if we end up praying for Tim twice, because we have two services, he might become some kind of super elder and devour us all. Um, But we're going to do it anyway, and uh, and we're going to have a great time together. So make sure you're here um, next week. It's going to be a really important Sunday for us as a church, recognizing Tim as a spiritual father in the church, really, and, and praying for he and his family. Today, I want to talk about the church in worship. It might even say that as a heading in your uh, Bibles. Um, We must understand that worship doesn't equal singing, okay? Uh, Worship, singing to God is worship, but it's not the totality of what worship is. Paul was concerned about all of life being uh, an act of worship. Uh, But particularly here, he's looking at the gathered church and how the gathered church is to be uh, when it's together. And uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. I mean, picking up Uh, In 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 8 to 15. 
I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, if this is your first time amongst us, or maybe your first time ever reading the Bible, uh, then one thing you should be really aware of is that uh, this is probably one of the most difficult passages of the New Testament to understand, not just because of its content and how its content might offend our 21st century uh, liberal culture, but because there's a lot of this passage that is really quite hard to understand what Paul is getting at. And so because of this, it really needs careful treatment. And so more than I normally would, I will be sticking to my notes to ensure that what I'm saying is really clear. I want to speak firstly about reading and understanding the Bible. Uh, The fancy term for this is hermeneutics. And then I'm going to deal with a few things that are raised in this passage. And I want to finish by speaking about Jesus, because I believe this passage does speak about Jesus in perhaps a way that's not clear upon first reading. So, reading and understanding the Bible. If this is your first time amongst us, then uh, one thing that we do every week is we open up God's Word together. We, we love to do this. We love to praise Him, to pray together, but we always open up God's Word together. And uh, we gather to hear what He has to say to us through it. And as I've said, we're not usually walking through such a difficult and tricky passage to understand but we do give time to unpacking God's Word together. Why? Because we've got a deep conviction that this book contains all the words of God for the entire human race at this point in history. It's a bold claim, but we really believe that this book, when interpreted correctly, is true in all it affirms. And we really believe that this book contains timeless, life-giving truth that is profitable, beneficial for us today, in the 21st century, and we're going to come on to that in just a moment. We would describe ourselves as evangelical in that regard, in that we see the Bible as a foundation for us, and it always will be. Now, I'm well aware that the tag evangelical has connotations with it that aren't always ones that we would want to be associated with. So, for example, in some parts of the world, world, the um, term evangelical is kind of uh, likened or is Uh, linked to politicized movements. That's not something that we are about here. Or it might be kind of linked with people who are hate-filled towards others. That's not something that we are about here. But one thing we're very clear on is that the Bible is foundational for us. Anything else that we value here, we value because we value the Bible. So we would describe ourselves as a charismatic church, and that's because we're evangelical. I'll put that in English for you. We believe that the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is amongst us to do some of the things that we saw earlier, people getting healed. We believe that those gifts and those experiences are for today because we believe in the Bible. We're gospel-centered, which means we we center our lives around this good news of God's grace to us because we're evangelical. 
We care for the poor and needy, not because it's fashionable or trendy, because one day it won't be fashionable and trendy. We do this because we're evangelical, because we believe in God's word. This book is foundational for us. And when it comes to the New Testament, we hold to what we would call the presumption of obedience. This is to say that we have a commitment to obeying the imperatives that we find in the New Testament that are addressed to new covenant believers. That basically means you and I, if we believe in Jesus, we are in the new covenant. There's a new way of relating to God. There was the old covenant whereby people related to the laws and the rituals and the sacrifices as laid out in the Old Testament. But we now have a new covenant, a new agreement, and it's all about God's grace. We are in that covenant. And so when we see things listed in the New Testament, imperatives and things that are directives, we believe we come with a presumption of obedience. We assume that these are for us today. Unless we see that they are clearly related to specific individuals, and it's clearly not for us, or that they are given and they are clearly applying only for a limited time period. So, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is the next book along, Paul asks Timothy to fetch his coat and scrolls. We can clearly see that this is a command only for Timothy to obey. We don't have to go searching around the Middle East for Paul's coat and scrolls. We'll be wasting our time. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 6, Jesus says to his disciples, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is clearly superseded by Jesus' later command to his disciples, which is go into the whole world and preach about me and make disciples of me. So there's obviously clear exceptions there where the command is for a specific individual or for a clearly limited period whereby it's superseded later. And in a handful of cases, this may mean that we find different physical symbols to express the spiritual reality the scriptures are highlighting. For example, in Romans chapter 16, Paul commands the church there to greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, I don't know what a holy kiss is. I wonder if, it's, if you've had mouthwash beforehand. I don't know. Uh, but there is a principle for us today, which is that we greet one another in a warm way because we're family. So we might, in this context, in 21st century Britain, we might give each other a holy hug or a holy fist bump. But in some cultures, it would be absolutely appropriate to uh, take that principle and apply it in exactly the same way. So, for example, in France, it might be appropriate for uh, a man to kiss another man when he's greeting him. In this country, you might get a punch if you tried that. But there's a principle there which we, we clearly see and we obey it. Similarly, when it comes to 1 Corinthians 11, we see certain instructions elsewhere in that passage about men not having long hair and about women having head coverings. Again, there's a principle there for us, but it's not necessarily the case that the symbol for us is the same in 21st century Britain. If we were a church in the Middle East, we may well work out that principle in a similar way to the church in Corinth. But in Britain, the outworking of that principle may be different. So there may be exceptions where an imperative is clearly for an individual or is explicitly superseded elsewhere in the New Testament, or there may be times, as I've just explained, where that principle may have a different symbol for us now. But usually, a presumption of obedience will mean this. We hear the words of God and we put them into practice. Now, an opposite approach to this 
is to dismiss certain commands as cultural because the culture then was very different to our culture now. For an example, uh, someone might say, well, the definition of marriage was different then to what it is now. And had Jesus or the Apostle Paul been speaking into today's culture, their approach would be more liberal and they would be behind a redefinition of marriage. Now, I can see a few problems with that approach. Firstly, it's that if we start with dismissing some texts because they are offensive to our 21st century postmodern culture, we are on a slippery slope to dismissing the whole thing. And I mean the whole thing. Let me explain. The Bible is always going to be countercultural. I hope you know that. The Bible is always going to offend some culture somewhere. And in different places, it will offend the norms and ideals of different cultures. So if we cut out bits that don't seem to fit with the pervasive view in our culture, there will be other cultures that will be offended by totally different parts. For example, some in the UK might be offended by Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul talks about marriage and how marriages are to work, and we're going to touch on that a little bit later on. But Bible readers elsewhere in another culture might not be offended by that, but offended by what Jesus says about not taking revenge when someone strikes you. He says, turn the other cheek. They might say, that's, that's obviously, if Jesus was speaking to my culture, he would say, hit them back. Now, the problem, another problem with that approach is that I don't think that our world and the world to which Paul and the other writers of the scripture were speaking into, I don't think they're as different as we might think. You might think that sounds crazy because, of course, there were many differences between the culture that Paul is writing into and the culture that we are in now. But as we'll see in a moment, even the beginning of this passage that we've read together, it shows us that today's problems are not really very different to the problems that people were facing 2,000 years ago. There is nothing new under the sun, the Bible says. And so we might think that things are very different, but really... It's just different packaging with the same product. We love Aldi. We live pretty much next door to it. We're in there every day. I see a lot of you in there from time to time getting your bargains. Now, sometimes with some of their products, it's literally when you undo the wrapper, it's exactly the same as the branded product, but you've paid 50p less for it. That is the deal here. Our cultures may appear very different, but really when you pull back the layers, the product is pretty much the same. We're dealing with many of the same problems and many of the same struggles and mindsets. So it's problematic to say that we won't obey certain things in Scripture because they were simply culturally very different to us. It doesn't hold up to much scrutiny, and it leads us to all kinds of problems. So we read the New Testament, and we read it with a presumption of obedience. Why? Because it's God-breathed, and it's profitable for us. And it's relevant today just as it was then. When God breathed out his word, he saw the end from the beginning. He didn't fail to anticipate what society would be like now. His word doesn't come with an expiry date because our culture is very different. No, he breathed out his word and it's as relevant today as it was then. I want to demonstrate this to us as we read again verses 8 to 10. I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, 
but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So first up, Paul tackles the men. Men, it's time to listen up for a few minutes. In fact, you should be listening up to the whole thing, but particularly right now. I sense that men haven't changed much in 2,000 years. Men tend to be angry a lot of the time and like a good dispute. Also, men don't seem to like prayer meetings very much. And oftentimes when we gather together for prayer and vision, the women outnumber the men. Women, thank you for coming. It's good to have you with us. I'd love to see men here praying, calling in God's kingdom in Ipswich as it is in heaven. So men don't really change much over the centuries. Paul is encouraging them to leave behind anger and to give themselves to worship and prayer. Now, anger is in us all. It's not just men who struggle with anger. I believe each of us struggle with anger in different ways. But I think it's more prevalent in men. I want to ask you right now, men, to consider for a moment, am I angry? Under the surface of my heart, is there anger there? The problem with anger is that we very, re- we very rarely actually acknowledge it in our own lives. We very, very rarely see it because we think that anger literally means punching a wall. But actually, sometimes anger works out in other ways. It might be that we sit and seethe silently and then blow up. Or it might be that we actually just constantly just under this cloud of depression because we're really angry about some things that have happened to us. I'm not talking here about those things that just kind of annoy you a little bit. Things spilt, things misplaced, learner drivers, that kind of thing. You know, I live on a road where learner drivers are at it all the time. And even though I was a learner driver once, I lack patience for learner drivers because I'm, I'm, I'm late for a meeting and suddenly they're doing a 15-point turn in the road and I'm banging the steering wheel saying, come on! I'm not talking about those little annoyances here. I'm talking about a perpetual kind of anger that is really all about our desires, those selfish desires within us. Desires are not always wrong. It's, it's not wrong to want to be loved, to be respected, to have things that we can uh, provision for our family. But the problem is that our desires become our rights. We des- I deserve that. I deserve this. And those desires morph into idols. And it's those idols, when they get threatened, that we can burst out in anger. And men, from my own experience and from my pastoral experience, there's a high likelihood that you you have anger bubbling up underneath the surface. Paul knew that for men, anger is a prevalent problem. And his instruction is that men pour their hearts out to God in prayer and worship. And after the first service, I was delighted to pray with a man and other men were being prayed for in this regard. Just said, I just know this is a problem for me. You know, there's absolutely no shame in receiving prayer. We'll have a prayer team, men and women, over to my right later. There's no shame in receiving prayer for something. Over the last eight weeks, I think I've responded twice, saying, please pray for me, something that was brought in the preaching or in the worship time that's really struck a chord with me. I want you to pray for me. There's no shame in doing that. In fact, it's it's, it's really good when we go and lay things out and say, let's get before God on this. Wives here, please don't nudge your husband at this point and say, go and receive prayer. That is not helpful, and you're likely to get more anger as a result from that. But you can pray that your husband will have a heart that is open to God. The Bible is as relevant today as it was when it was first breathed out by God. Ladies, the message for you is crystal clear too. It's this, don't get obsessed with outward appearance. This isn't a list of do's and don'ts. Please don't get tripped up on these things. 
We're not doing a metal detector at the door to see if you're wearing any gold. We're not, uh, well, there's no chart there which says this is an elaborate hairstyle. Lists like this are totally not the point. They're totally not the point. Paul is simply echoing Jesus' teaching that if we're focusing on our outward appearance at the neglect of our inner man, then actually we're like whitewashed tombs. We're like corpses on the inside with fancy coffins on the outside. And this is super relevant for us. It's not irrelevant for men either. This is a big deal for men as well. But I think it's more prevalent, again, with ladies, that we can become uh, too self-obsessed. I'm saying we like I'm a lady. I'm not a lady. But in our culture, there's an obsession with looks. Ladies, can I exhort you? Regularly assess your heart on this. Assess your hearts more than you do your wrinkles. Assess your hearts more than you do your nails. Assess your heart. Is my heart pure before God? Someone pointed out to me um, during the break between services that actually these things, these commands really help the other, particularly in marriages. It's helpful to a man that his wife is really concentrating on being a godly woman. And it's helpful to a wife that her husband is a man of prayer and not of anger and quarreling. Isn't this amazing? It's so helpful for us today. We are in serious trouble in this nation with an obsession with self-image. There are dozens of apps, I was researching this week, dozens of apps available where you can change the way you look. Facetune, Luxury, Beauty Mirror, where you can literally change your facial features so that you look more presentable on social media. It doesn't require me to be an award-winning psychologist to work out. This is bad news for our culture. This is really dangerous. And it's going to lead to loads of mental health problems. It's going to lead to depression. It's going to lead to suicide. It's going to lead to awful things because we can get so obsessed with this beautiful image that we think we have to attain to. This is as relevant today in the 21st century as it was when it was first written. Check your heart. What is absorbing your thoughts? Is it your outward appearance or is it an inner beauty? There is no expiry date on the word of God. It's relevant for today. So, let's move onwards to what might be possibly the most hard to hear verses for our 21st century minds. Verses 11 to 14, and we're going to finish by looking at verse 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So, as I said earlier, this is one of the trickiest passages that we could come across in Scripture. But we approach it, as I've already said, with a presumption of obedience. Unless it's clearly shown to us that it's limited to specific individuals or for a specific period of history. We don't ignore it until we're persuaded that it applies to us. We follow it until we're persuaded that it doesn't. So unless it can be clearly shown from this context or elsewhere in Scripture that Paul was aiming his instruction at some individuals and not others, like his fetch the scrolls word to Timothy, then we should assume that we should obey it. And that's our view as elders at Hope Church, that this text stands relevant for us today. But we need to unpack this a lot Because there's some things that Paul has said here which seem to directly contradict what he said elsewhere in this letter to Timothy and indeed elsewhere in the New Testament. 
So elsewhere in this letter, we see Paul's command to the women in the church to teach the younger women. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we see women reading out the scriptures to the gathered church. We see women encouraged to bring exhortation and admonishment to others in the church. We see women encouraged to prophesy and pray in the gathered church. And a woman, along with her husband, bringing some theology training to a young budding apostle. So if we only had 1 Timothy chapter 2, we might have a very clear idea of what Paul is or is not permitting in the church. However, we have much more than that. And therefore, as elders, we would agree with J.I. Packer, who's very much a father figure in evangelicalism, who asserts this, Scripture must interpret Scripture. The scope and significance of one passage is to be brought out by relating it to others. What he's saying here is that if there is something which is not clear, and I would suggest that in this passage that we've just read, there's some things that are not clear, then we have to seek out what is said elsewhere in the Scriptures in order to come to the right interpretation of it. Do you understand that? So that's a good method for when we're studying the Bible at home. I hope you are studying the Bible in your private life. That even when we find something that we don't understand, a good method is this, to firstly look elsewhere within the same letter or book and see what else does this letter or book have to say on this subject. Secondly, to look at the same author. So in this case, it's the Apostle Paul. What else has he said on this subject? And thirdly, then, to look at the same Testament. So this is the New Testament. Let's see what else the New Testament has to say about this subject. And as we do this, we see a pattern in the Scriptures that leads us as elders to hold to a complementarian view of men and women's role in marriage and in the church community. Please note that we do not believe that this extends to the workplace. We don't see that in the Scriptures. So we're complementarian in our belief, which I'm going to explain. It means, firstly, that we believe that men and women are equal. Can you say equal? Equal. Equal. Say a bit louder. Equal. Equal. Men and women are equal in their worth, in their value, in their dignity, equally bearing the image of God. This is really clear in Genesis chapter 1. So this will be the first page of the Bible, verses 27 to 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, Adam and Eve, totally equal before God, equal in their value and worth, equal in the way in which they bear the image of God, but with differences in role and responsibility. Husbands and wives, we believe, are equal, but with, complement, with complementary roles and responsibilities. That's why it's called complementarianism. That's probably the longest word I've ever said. And if you want to sound clever, you can use that word too. Even in the next chapter, we see a difference in role. Adam is called to have a leadership role, and Eve is asked to help him in that. The same word for Eve being Adam's helper is the same word that is used of God, literally lifesaver. Adam's dependent on her. It's a position of honor. And just as within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all are equally God, but have different roles. 
The Son is no less God because he is sent by the Father. The Holy Spirit is no less God because he is sent by the Father and the Son. So you don't have to have sameness in order to have equality. This is a big mistake that our society is making. That in order for us to have equality, we have to accept that men and women are the same. I don't believe men and women are the same. Obviously, that's a pretty obvious thing to say in terms of physical differences. But I don't believe men and women are the same beyond physical differences. So there's a difference in role and a difference in responsibility. Interestingly, we see that when Adam and Eve sin, they're tricked by the serpent and they both sin and God comes looking for Adam. He comes looking for Adam because he sees Adam as responsible. He sees Adam as the head of that marriage. Now we have head teachers in schools, don't we? And it's the head teacher's role to ensure that the school, its staff and its pupils, is flourishing. When a school flourishes, it's nearly always to do with the head teacher. My children's school, I think, is flourishing, and I believe it's in no small part down to the head teacher. She is an amazing woman, and she's a servant, being observed serving her, her staff, serving the children. And the school is flourishing as a result. Conversely, when a school is not flourishing, it's the head teacher who gets the rap for it. And so it was for Adam, and so it is with marriage. Men, we are called to lovingly lead our families in a self-sacrificial way, like Christ. This will lead to our families flourishing. Maybe you think I'm making a bit too much of a jump from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Well, this becomes hugely explicit in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians, one of the greatest pieces of writing of all time. Some amazingly beautiful truths in Ephesians. And this is what Paul writes in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. There's a lot more that I could read there because it's a very, very beautiful analogy of marriage there, a picture of marriage. But what Paul is saying here is that husbands, we are to be heads in our marriage. That word headship, when we unpack that passage some more. That word headship means loving, self-sacrificial authority with the responsibility of the flourishing of your wife and family. That kind of headship is the headship that Jesus demonstrated. He demonstrated it to his disciples. He washed their feet. He said, this is how you're to lead. You're to lead by serving. You're to lead by getting your hands dirty and serving others. And he ultimately demonstrated it to us as he laid his life down on the cross. That's the kind of loving headship that Jesus gives to his church. He would lay his life down for us. And there's generations of families in this nation where men have not heeded that call to be loving Christ-like heads in their families. Where men have been lazy, where men have been selfish, where men have taken and taken and taken and have left families in tatters. And just speaking to people after this service who've just known that in their own lives, very painful. We'd love to pray with you if that's your experience. The biggest problems in our society are often traced back to men not being all they are called to be. 
and the church not calling men to be all that they are to be. There's generations of messed up homes, messed up kids, because men have taken, men have abused, men have been the exact opposite of the loving head that Jesus would have us be. So, if we're clear and in agreement on Ephesians chapter 5, that husbands are to lead their small families, it's not a surprise that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the very next chapter in this letter, in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Peter chapter 5, that God would call a few men to lead his big family, the church. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, first few verses of it. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The Bible uses the words overseer, elder, and pastor interchangeably. They're the same thing, same role, same office. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I think it's pretty explicit there and elsewhere that I've cited that just as husbands are called to lead in a Christ-like, sacrificial, initiative-taking, protective way, so elders are to lead in the local church. So to be really clear, we believe that elders are men who lovingly oversee and pastor the flock just as husbands are to lead in the household. That does not mean that the congregation are passive or undiscerning or untrained. Quite the opposite. We really are passionate that our flock, our members are being all they can be in God and being trained to the max, being all they can be in bringing God glory. Just as a good dad wants to see his wife and children flourish and be all they can be. So as elders, we want to encourage all in our flock to flourish and use their gifting for God's glory. Now, there will be some sitting here this morning thinking, I don't agree with this. But you know what? There are people in our church who say, on this point, I'm not sure I quite get it, but I love being part of this church. And that is a really, really mature attitude, and we love having you with us. And there will even be some uh, in other churches in this town who would see things differently. I have good friends in this town who are uh, church leaders, male and female, who will see this differently. And you know what? I really, really want their churches to thrive. I pray for them. I, I'm, I'm gunning for them. I'm on the sideline cheering them on, saying, go for it. We believe different things on this particular point, but we have so much in common. We have so much that unites us. We believe that Jesus is the only Son of God, that he came to earth, he lived a perfect life, that he died a death in our place, that he rose again, that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. He's coming back in victory. We believe these same things, these core truths, and therefore we're on the same team. And I believe the feeling's mutual. I get a lot of people praying for me, a lot of fellow pastors and ministers in this town saying, I want to pray for you, I want to pray for your church. It's a good thing. Even though we might be different on these things, we are united because we have so much in common. So, with this framework and understanding, we tackle 1 Timothy 2 verse 12. And we see Paul write this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And we see this 
as a preclusion from women being in eldership in our church and from teaching in an authoritative way. That's hugely controversial in 2018, but we fear God more than we fear the opinion of others. What does this look like in practice? What are the practical applications for our church? Because you might say, well, we've had women giving sermons here before, and we've had women sitting on uh, panels whereby uh, they're giving their experience and advice on certain things. And you might say, does this mean that we're inconsistent? And I would say, no, I don't believe we are. Because this word to teach in the original language, which was Greek, the word is didaskain, it's a specific word. And this is something that Paul is prohibiting non-elders to do. But when we look at the New Testament, there's a whole collection of other words used to describe verbal communication in one form or another. Literally different, distinct Greek words. The English translations would be exhortation, equipping, encouragement, testimony, preaching of the gospel, prophecy, and prayer. And sometimes in places such as Romans chapter 12, these things are listed consecutively. If your gift is to teach, then teach. If it's to exhort, then to exhort. And it shows us very clearly that these are different things. These are distinct gifts. And there's no hint, as far as we can see, that these forms of verbal communication are restricted to elders only. Some may see that the Sunday morning sermon, this kind of 35, 40-minute-ish monologue, they might see that this is always to be an authoritative teaching thing, but we don't believe that to be the case in this church. It's possible to hold to that, and indeed some churches might do, i.e. that when we gather together on Sundays, that all that must be given from the front is authoritative teaching, and it must be elder only. I think it's possible and legitimate to hold that view, but we don't see that the Bible prescribes that And that's not what happens here at Hope Church anyway. I would suggest today that I am teaching in an authoritative way and laying down some foundations. But more often than not, what we are doing here is something different. The other week, I was preaching the gospel here on Easter Sunday, and there was uh, eggs under the seats with numbers on. It was an all-age thing. And I was sharing the age-old message of Easter. I was preaching the gospel. I don't believe that had to be me. I just fancied doing it, and I set the rotor, and I wanted to speak on Easter Sunday. But it didn't have to be me. And in fact, in the years to come, I pray that we would raise up many gifted evangelists, men and women here, who would be able to preach the gospel, whether it be in one-to-one settings, or in larger groups, or on Sundays when we have special services. That, to me, is something that we want to see happening. We want to see people raised up who can communicate the gospel in that way. Sundays present to us a golden opportunity to gather the whole flock, usually as many as, well, often as many as 400 people, to teach, to exhort, to encourage, to envision, to present direction. And because of that, the elders will do the majority of the sermons here, because it's a golden opportunity when we're all together. And listen, we're looking out for the flock. We'd sit down sometimes and just say, what? What do we sense is needed right now? What do we need to teach into here? What do we need to bring some direction on? What do we need to bring some clarity on? We do have these conversations, you'll be reassured to know. We're, we're trying to watch over this growing flock like shepherds. That's kind of our role, really. And we want to say, what is it that we need to bring some teaching into? But there will be times, and there have been very recently, when we will invite those who are not elders to encourage us, to exhort us, and to speak into certain subjects 
This, we really believe, is important. And the word invite there is important. It's on, on the invitation of us as elders to say, we really think, we trust you. We trust that you're a, a servant. We trust that you're someone who's trustworthy. You love God's word. And we want to invite you. We don't think you're hungry for some kind of platform and you know, fame. We trust that you're going to come and serve us. And we want to invite you to come and do that with us. That's, that's how it works. That's what I mean by invite there. And so <clears throat> a few weeks ago, we've we had uh, Tommy Oyabadejo speaking, and I mean, he's a brilliant communicator of God's Word, right? Amazing communicator of God's Word. I sat down with him a few nights before he preached and just said, you know, we'd invited him some months beforehand to wrap up the last series we did. And I just said, Tommy, what have you got? And listened to his preach. And I thought, this is amazing. But I had something cropped up that I thought, Tommy, just leave that to us as elders. We'll touch upon that sometime. That, he would have said, yeah, Absolutely. And that's the case when we invite people to come and speak here, men or women, that we're inviting those that we trust and who are servants and who might be able to speak on a particular matter to bring some light onto it. So, for example, I can teach on singleness. I can preach about singleness because the Bible preaches about it. The Bible speaks into the matter of singleness. Even though I'm married, I can speak into these things. I have done, I will do, I'm sure, in the months and years to come. But sometimes... It would be much more helpful for single people to hear from a single person on that matter. Or with the matter of uh, how we are to live and, and how we're to present Jesus in the workplace. I have a job, but it's not a regular job. I used to have a job which was more of a regular job. And so I can speak into these things because the Bible speaks into these things primarily. But sometimes it might be helpful to hear from someone, whether an elder or not an elder, who's day to day in a workplace where people don't love and honor Jesus. Does that make sense? So this is our position here. We believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to the body of Christ, the church, to men and women, so that we may be built up. These gifts are available. These gifts are available. And some of the most gifted leaders in our church are women, leading ministries, leading groups. Some of our most gifted communicators are women, I would dare say as well. But my encouragement to you, men and women... that you would pray that God would gift you and that you would use the gifts that he's given you for his glory. He's got a part for you to play in a church of our size. For relatively few, it may be an upfront role. That's not what it's about. That is really not what it's about. That's not what eldership is about. 5% of, maybe even less than that, 5% or less of what I do is upfront. It's not what proclaiming God's word is all about. It's about the fame of Jesus. That's what it's about ultimately. It's not the Tom Scriven show. It's not the Tim Virgo show. It's the Jesus show. Amen? It's all about him. And the gifts are all about serving him and making him famous. And this is how Paul ends this passage, by talking about Jesus. You might think, hang on a minute, I didn't see that in there. Admittedly, it's an obscure way of doing it, but I believe this is what he's getting at. In verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is a very obscure passage. It's not saying that if you wish to be saved that you must bear a child. It's clearly not saying that because earlier on in the the very same letter, Paul is saying there's one mediator between God and men and that's the man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator, one way by which we're saved. It's through faith in Jesus who died in our place on the cross, who rose again victorious. He's the mediator. He's the way that we get saved. 
So it's clearly not saying that you have to have a child if you want to be saved. Theologians have debated about what it means. They've never, they've never felt that that was a legitimate uh, understanding of it. There's different uh, debates about what it means, but I'm with John Stott on this one, or I think I'd like to say he's with me on this one, uh, that this passage is saying that women will be saved through the birth of the child. That's men and women, really. Through the, saved through the birth of the child, referring to Jesus. Earlier, as I said, Paul has talked about the media, mediator between God and man. This mediator was long promised, promised thousands of years before he came. And right at the beginning in Genesis and in chapter 3, the devil in the form of a serpent, he's tricked Eve, Adam's followed suit, and they're in big trouble, and God is giving them a dressing down. He announces curses on them. But to the snake, he says this, you're going to be crushed one day. Verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. A promise that a descendant of the woman would come and crush the head of the evil one. Jesus did this. He crushed the head of the evil one. He did it by being crushed himself. He did it by taking upon himself the punishment that we deserved. To bring about an end to death. To show the world mercy. To show the world the power of God. And to bring about forgiveness. To bring about hope for us. To bring us back to God. I want to st- I'd just love to stand together. I just want, can we stand? I just want to make much of Jesus as we finish today. Because it really is all about him. You might have a million and one thoughts in your mind right now. But my prayer all this week as I prepared for this message is that we would be left with one taste in our mouth as we leave. And that it would be Jesus and how he tastes so good. And how good he is. That's my desire. And I want you to know that Jesus has done everything. He's moved heaven and earth to save you. He has laid down his life for you. And you might be here today and thinking, I don't believe all of this. Let me tell you, God is alive. He's real. He's reigning in glory. He's healing people today. We saw two people healed earlier. Isn't that amazing? He loves you. He's interested in you. John shared earlier, he just felt God was saying, he just wants you to know, I'm interested in you. I see you. You can give your life to Jesus today. Maybe you've grown up with all of this and you think, yeah, I, I get it, my parents are crazy about Jesus, but I don't get it for myself. Today, as we sing in just a moment, ask God, say, God, come and show yourself to me. Come and reveal your love to me. Come and change me. Because he's here to do that this morning. He's here to, do, he's here to change lives. That's what he's always done. Shall we pray? And then we, these guys are going to lead us. And, and there'll be time to pray. There'll be prayer team gathering. Maybe you're a man here and you think, yeah, I need to get some things laid out in prayer when it comes to anger. Or self-esteem, it's self-image. It might be that there might be some ladies who are thinking, yeah, I just, I've, I've focused too much on that and I need to get this sorted out. Or it might be that you have not experience the kind of loving husband that Ephesians 5 talks about and you've been left in all kinds of mess or your family's been left in all kinds of mess by selfish men and you, you just want God to do some healing work in your heart today. That, this is the kind of thing we're, we're asking you, come forward for prayer. Don't leave it uh, unaddressed. Come and receive prayer. We'd love to serve you in that way and then after we've sung, uh, Hannah will bring the bring things to the close. So let's pray. Father, we 
We trust in you. We say, God, you're so good to us. Thank you, Father, you've made salvation possible, sending your son, the one who would come and crush the enemy, the one who would go to the lengths that he went to to save us. I'm grateful, Lord, for all you've done in my life. I don't deserve it. I really don't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. Lord, you've rescued me, and I was far from you. Father, would you come and do a great work in hearts right now? Come and bring healing, Lord, where there's been hurt. Come and bring uh, conviction where we've walked in wrong ways. Help us to trust in you. Help us to use the gifts you've given us for your glory, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you've done in our lives. We bless your name together. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in